Hey, let's get to God's word. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 is where we're going to pick up. We're going to read just 25 and then drop down to verses 29 and 30. Um, we've been uh, made new, we saw last week. Weber did such a great job communicating that, that God has come in and has changed us from the inside out, that we have, he has put off the old. This has already happened. This is a past, as he said, it is the aorist. It has happened. It happened in the past, and he has put on a new identity. And so we are being remade from the inside out into this new behavior. And, 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 and as part of being remade, there is going to be a new life on the externally that's going to begin to put on. It's going to feel like we're wearing somebody else's clothes. Because it is. It's Jesus' clothes. Putting on new life. And he's going to give us a list over the next couple of weeks. Paul is here in Ephesians that talks about some of the ways in which our behavior is to change. That as we take on this new identity, this new life, Here's what it will begin to look like in your life. And as we do that, we don't want this to be a slog. We want there to be a joy in the journey. Whoever brought it up last week, there's a, 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 a picture, a word picture we use around here to talk about sanctification, about how we change, and a pattern. We call it a dance or a waltz. A waltz is a three-step dance, all right? There's, there's Weber's great clip art from WikiHow last week. Uh, you're impressed with uh, Weber's PowerPoint skills. Uh, but it's a three-step dance, right? And it's repent, believe, and obey. That is the waltz. Three steps. Repent, in which we see, oh, I don't live like that. I'm going to lay that aside. I'm going to put off. I'm going to believe the good news of Jesus, of what he's doing inside of me. And then I'm going to live into this new calling, this new identity, And so this week, in each of these weeks, we're going to look at these three steps, repent, believe, obey, that this would become a part of second nature. We would do it day in and day out. We would think through, ah, why am I yelling at my kids? Ha, I need to repent. What do I need to believe about the gospel that's so good, that empowers me to be patient and kind and gentle? And what does it look like now to go obey, to fight for obedience and to honoring the Lord? So here's your first example. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another, dropping down to 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This is God's word. Praise be to the Lord. All right. Some of you may have heard or read about at some point, probably around 11, 12, 13, reading about some biography of some famous American about a lady named Helen Keller. She was both deaf and blind. And yet, she became a prolific author, a lecturer, an advocate for women's rights, and in fact, she was the first deaf and blind graduate ever from a university in America. But have you ever wondered or learned how Helen Keller learned to communicate? It actually started when she was nine years old, in which she met a woman named Annie Sullivan, and Annie Sullivan dedicated her life. She was absolutely committed to helping this little girl learn to communicate. And Helen's first breakthrough happened when Annie would sign with one hand. It's difficult. You don't have the senses. 
There's no, you can't see or hear. So how are you going to teach someone to, to, to communicate at all? So she would, she would sign with one hand, with the little girl's hand, showing her the sign she was to do while sticking her hand in water. Showing her, ah, this is the first thing she ever did. Showing, eventually, Helen Keller got it. Oh, the sign I'm making means water, water. And then they did this over and over and over and over again. The little girl nearly drove Annie crazy because she wanted to know every single word she could possibly figure out. She wanted to communicate desperately. And it took years upon years upon years. Helen would throw enormous tantrums. Can you imagine how, you ever seen a toddler? One of the reasons why they throw a tantrum is because they can't what? Communicate. And they want to be like, hey, I have needs and I don't know what to say. And that makes you want to throw things. And Helen Keller would throw enormous tantrums. So desperate was she to learn to communicate. And she poured her life into learning how to communicate with words. She understood that her life, that life was bound up in words, in words. She understood intuitively the power and the life that is found in being able to speak, be able to communicate. So we're going to waltz together this morning. And one of the first things that Paul talks about, the first thing out of the gate, he says, listen, in this new life, you know what's the first thing that I want you to focus on that's going to change in your life is your mouth will change. Your words will change so we're going to waltz, repent, believe, obey. In this case, we follow the rhythm of the text. And so we pick up our first step and obey. We're going to put on, putting on and putting off. We're going to put on the words that build up. And this morning, when you got up, you had to put on clothes. You had to consider what the day held, right? You thought about it. You had to put on the right outfits. If you were going to a funeral today, that meant that you weren't going to wake up and put a Speedo on, right? If you were going swimming today, also, hopefully you did not wake up today and put a Speedo on, right? You considered what is right for me to put on, and it's the same thing with our words. We need to consider, to give thought to our words. And so I want to give you three considerations about our words. First, the text says, consider the truth. Your words have to be truthful, What's it say? Let each one of you put aside falsehood and instead speak the truth to one another. Famously in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, what does it say? Speak the truth to one another in love. Paul's words are poignantly relevant to the ancient culture, and I would say they're very relevant today. But lying, for particular, in that culture, in in non-Israelite cultures, was endemic. It It was, everybody lied. They lied about everything. Have you ever been, and this is a, a very Western idea of actually, uh, of truth. It's actually one of the, I would say, one of the virtues of more Western society. Because if you go in other places, particularly in the East, in part of the world, I, where I've been in those parts, no one has any problem lying about everything, right to your face, all the time. And, and this is part of the endemic to their culture. And Paul is saying one of the first things that must be set aside as you come into this new life and this new family is you must learn to begin to speak the truth always. In the parallel passage, Paul says this in Colossians as well. Colossians 3, 9, and 10, he says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and that you've put on the new self. There is no place for lying and fudging on the truth in the church. And why is lying forbidden? 
Why is it so important to tell the truth? What's it say? It says because we are members of one another. It's saying that if, if you are in a relationship with somebody and you find that your spouse has lied to you, that is a betrayal that cuts deep. Because there is, some, there is, almost, there is hardly any other sin out there that destroys trust in a relationship more quickly than lying. And we have been called to be a holy people who have been given a message by which that is for the changing, the transformation of the world. And the thing that gums that up is when we begin to have infighting and we lose trust with one another. And the fastest way for us to lose trust together is to not speak the truth to one another. It's to lose credibility. One old Scottish commentator put it this way. He says, a lie, a lie is a stab into the very vitals of the body of Christ. That when we are untruth, not truthful with one, to, with one another, it hurts us. It stifles unity. If I say, if my eye says to my hand, that pan is not hot that's been on a fire, and I touch that pan, what happens to me? I get burned. And so it is. One of the things that is one of, that is one of the calls to elders in particular in protecting the, the sheep is what? To make sure that there is nothing false being communicated in this body. Whether it be teaching from the word of God or lies in our midst. So this is, more, this is more than simply don't tell a lie. This is positively to speak the truth. That you're to be a people of the truth at all times, communicating that which is right and what is good. That means no manipulating even those things that are true. And no permanent silence on truths that must be spoken. For example, you can, you can, you can come fall far short of this call of speaking the truth in at least a number of different ways. Let me give you an example. There's Mr. A, Mr. B, and Mr. C. And they all know that a man, John Doe, did not rob the bank. They were with him. They know he didn't rob the bank. But A, Mr. A, when he's asked about John Doe, he says, yes, John Doe robbed the bank. That's what we call a flat-out lie. So that's one way to not speak the truth. But then B says, well, all I know is I saw John Doe walk past the bank. Is that true? Yes, but in the context of an investigation, that is a manipulative manipulation of the truth. To use a little bit of language, a little bit of the truth, but conceal enough so that it actually manipulates what's going on. But then Mr. C, he doesn't say anything at all, even though he knows the truth that John Doe did not steal from the bank. He says nothing. And his silence, when he has opportunity to set a man free, is an offense. And so it is with a people, a people of God who have the words of encouragement and the words of life to give one another, and we are silent. We are like Mr. C. And so, what, and why is this the first step? Why is this the first thing that Paul mentions? I think actually Paul may have something in mind about the fall. What's the first lie that enters into the world? Or what's the first thing that happens at temptation? The evil one lies. And even as is, before Eve grabs the fruit and bites into it and disobeys God, what does she actually do? She actually manipulates and twists God's word. The devil says, did God really say you cannot eat of the tree? And what does Eve say? Yes, not only did he say we can't eat of it, but he also, she also adds, and he, he also said we can't touch it. That's not true. That's not what God said. And what Paul is saying is the very place where sin enters the world is the place where we must begin to change. We must be a people of the truth. Second thing to consider, if we're going to speak the truth in love, well, we need to consider the context. 
Consider the context. So consider the truth, consider the context. It says, in, it says there in the passage, we are only as, use such words as is fitting to the occasion. That means if you're going dancing, put your dancing clothes on. If you're going to a funeral, put on your black suit and your black dress. Your words need to fit the occasion. Do you speak the, not only the right words, but in the right way and in the right time? Some of you, often you very direct truther types, will say, all that matters is that I tell the truth all the time. But that is not actually true. That is not true. Because you can say this truth in such a way that is in a very bad moment or in a way that is very destructive. For example, have you ever played the Captain Obvious role in your marriage? Your spouse comes in, it's been clearly a long day, and they're kind of stomping around, they're slamming doors, and you look at them and you go, well, somebody's in a sour mood. One, is that true? Yes. Is it helpful? Not really. And what is most likely to happen if you say that? You're the explosion that comes from the spouse. Well, let me tell you why I'm in a sour mood. Yes. Speaking the truth in that moment is not exactly appropriate and right, and good, and helpful, right? Many of our words, right, you can come up to me and say, Andrew, you're so fat that your nipples always stick out of your polos. And I would say to you, that is true, but that hurts my feelings. (laughs) And so our words need to be apt. Listen, I listened to Weber's sermon last week, and he rubbed off on me, so... Our words need to be apt and well-crafted, well-crafted words at the right time. Third, consider the reason. This is the grand poobah. Consider the reason for your words. What's it say? It says that you would only you give, speak such words as is helpful for building others up. Then it ends, words that are fitting for the occasion to give grace to others. Why do you most often speak? I think for most of us, we don't speak for the benefit of others. We speak for the benefit of me. We are just the people who like to just talk. We like the feeling of hot air leaving our bodies. Plato said this, wise men speak because they have something to say. Fools because they have to say something. Ouch. We say what we want because we want to say it, not because it's helpful or life-giving to the person who needs to hear it. We say things like this and we preface it. I just need to get this off my chest. And usually the words that follow that are not going to be very helpful. Or most of us, we just like the sound of our own voices, so we joke around and we jest constantly, and thus we run ourselves consistently into offensive words. Proverbs says, where words are many, there are many sins. There are many sins. And so we must ask our question, do our our words build people up or they tear them down? If you're going to build up, then our words need to be both gentle and direct. It just says in verse 15, we need to speak the truth in love. That is, our words need to be truth-telling, but they need to be swimming in a sauce of love. They need to be direct and they need to be gentle. And this is not a matter of you do one and the other, it's a matter of a balancing, it's that you do both at the same time. Proverbs 25 verse 15 says this, a gentle tongue can break a bone. That means that being gentle does not mean that you're mealy-mouthed. It doesn't mean that you kind of, you're, you're vapid in your words, you kind of beat around the bush. It's an idiom saying that a gentle but direct word can break down the most hardened heart and hardened resistance. 
right? Because Proverbs elsewhere says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Your words can be done, can be spoken with bone-crushingly effect, but they can still be said with a gentle tone, with loving words. Now, some of you are really great at the directness part. That's for some of you are like me. You get in a meeting with me, I like the quickest way between point A and point B. We're truthers. I'm, we're going to tell you like it is. But if you aren't gentle, guess what happens to us? No one will listen. I used to have a saying when I, had, um, when I was a youth pastor, which kids say, I mean, they do a lot of things to frustrate you. If you got 50, uh, you know, 16-year-olds hanging out, they pestered you. And, and they, you have to challenge. You have to be in a position to challenge a lot as a youth pastor. And I used to say all the time to myself was, Listen, they, will, they cannot hear you until they know that you love them. They will not be able to hear you until they know that you love them. And so people will not listen to you unless they sense that while your words are painful for them to hear, they also know that it's painful for you to say. That When you have to wound sometimes, when you have to be direct and convict and exhort and admonish, that there's a pain, there's a reluctance, there's a gentleness, though, in the way it comes out. Some of you are really good at being gentle, but you're not being very direct, and that is because you're a coward. And because you care more about what people think of you than about their ultimate good. So you're unwilling to call out the spouse. Listen, uh, this is the occasion, I, I see it all the time, in which one spouse is the spouse who, they're mean to the kids, and, and listen, that, that is that responsibility. That, but that God has given you a spouse in which you are to say at some point, enough. You will not speak this way in this house. In other words, if you are somebody and you are, you are complicit in their sins, if you will never stand up to them and say, this has to change. This must change in your life. So let me ask you, are your words grace-giving? Do they seek to build others up? Are your words gracious? In other words, are your words undeservedly kind? You see, if every word matters to Jesus, then every conversation you have matters. If you're a Christian, you should learn to train yourself that in every conversation, you should see yourself as Christ's ambassador of grace. You've been commissioned by the king to speak into a particular situation and say, I have an opportunity. Whether it's an easy one, someone does something great and you get to encourage them in the Lord, or you have to call to people to conviction. Every conversation is an opportunity for you to reflect and speak for the graciousness of the king. And so what does that mean for you parents today? When that child acts up and you have to send them to their room and they are screaming and you have to go in, you have to interact and you have to engage, or that child who's disobeyed you or you found out something distressing about that they have done and you have to confront, what does that mean? It means you actually have an opportunity in that moment, you are the ambassador of Jesus Christ, to enter in that, word, that room with words of conviction, of direction and truth, but in a context of gentleness and love and to bring life and light. So that's it. That's what you have to consider. True words, then have to consider the context and all. Be, make sure your right words are always right in every occasion. And then third, make sure your words are always, always, always gracious. Got it? Good. You ready to go home? Are you feeling the weight of this call yet? Let me, let me pour a little bit more cement into our hearts. These considerations are a matter of life and death. 
Proverbs 18, verse 21 says this, death and life are in the power of the tongue. According to biologists, pound for pound, the tongue is the strongest muscle in your body. If, you're, if, you're, if your tongue kept the same ratio of strength but was the size of your arm, you'd be able to lift a car up with one arm. Words, think about how powerful words are. Words were used to create the world. Let there be light. Let there be birds. Boom. And you know what? Because we're made in God's image, our words have the same way to create the world around us as well. Science has shown this. Hear this. There was a study showing an experiment involving speech therapy, and they took people from various parts of the world, so different languages, and, but they showed them on a, they, they put a spinning disc with different, with images on it. And they spun the disc around, not super fast, but enough that the image was able to be seen, but a little bit blurred. And what they found is the people who spoke different languages saw a different image. Everybody who spoke Spanish saw a certain image. Everybody who spoke English saw another image. Everybody who spoke Russian saw another image. And the hypothesis coming out of this of like, why in the world would people who spoke different languages see different things of a common object? And the hypothesis was this, that our language patterns are actually forming neural pathways in our brain so that we actually begin to see the world as our language speaks about the world. That the way we speak and talk shapes your worldview. Use speech that constructs. That's what it's saying. Builds up. Because you're literally forming your child's world. Think about this. If you're around somebody who's always talking critically, always complaining, how are they begin to see life more and more that everyone is after me? I'm downtrodden. Everything is against me. Nothing is for me. Right? Their world is actually being shaped by their words. Consider this. What's the tone and environment of your house? And some of your parents are going, oh, no. Because it was that, that complaining, grouching, arguing, fighting tone, perhaps that was created through the speech in the house. Words are so powerful. When you speak a word, you can't ever retract it. It's a sword going in, and it leaves a mark. Words can penetrate, and they can spread. Words can name. You name and identify people, lazy, fat, ugly, stupid, or fast, strong, beautiful, lovely, smart, beloved. Words can validate or tear down. They give life and they kill. Your words have an amazing, amazing power to insert grace and hope in the life of people. So many of you are doing what you're doing is the call of your life because someone spoke words of affirmation over you and it changed your life. Larry Crabb, some of you know him uh, in his books. He was uh, one of the best-selling Christian psychologists for about 30 years and became a, a, a great speaker on the topic of Christian counseling and wrote many, many, many books. But he talks about the first time he ever was asked to preach as he was considering going into to ministry. And he was a young man. And as a child and in, in, into young adulthood, he had a stutter. And he would, would struggle and he would get caught up as if he didn't write things out perfectly. And his first time he ever preached, he gave it everything he had, but he stuttered so badly and messed up so badly on, on his sermon that he said something horrendously heretical in the middle of the sermon. And he, and he kind of 
just kind of limped through the sermon and, and graciously got to the end and prayed and, and was, went to the back to greet people and was just waiting for the moment when the elders of the church called him aside where someone was going to correct him for, for his foolishness of speech and was going to challenge him on what he had to say. And then an elder came up and spoke to him and he said, all right, here we go. And he kind of was like, you know, girded himself up for the, for the gentle correction from the elder but instead, the elder put his hands on his shoulders on him, and he says, Larry, I just want you to know, I see the work of God in your life. And I am a thousand times, I'm a thousand percent behind you. And anything you need to help you in your ministry, I'm here for you. And he said it changed his whole perspective about ministry. It was no longer a place that wasn't safe. It was now a safe place. And sent him on a trajectory of life. So I'm going to ask you to do something. We're called to re- obey, repent, and believe. And yet, here's the thing. My guess is the second you get up from here, you're going to forget to do this. And so we're going to take a moment for 30 seconds. If you have a pen and a paper, maybe a phone, all of you have that. Take your note setting. Here we go. One name, one specific word of encouragement. One person, one specific word of encouragement that you can use to build them up. You can come up with three if you want to be a a grade A student. That's fine. One name, one specific encouragement. As you do not want to pray, Heavenly Father, may your spirit go out to direct us who we need to speak words of truth over today. Words of life and admiration and joy and delight. And so, Lord, even now, would you be setting aside these conversations? Help us to obey in this way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. What would church on Sunday mornings be like if every Sunday you did that practice and you showed up and you went for a beeline trying to find somebody at church? To grab them by the shoulder and say, man, you're God's child and here's what I see in you. And you've got to be specific. Be specific. Here's the second Here's the second step. That was long. That was obedience. Now we're going to repent and believe. Repent. If you're going to get dressed, you got to take off your clothes. I was at the gym a couple weeks ago, and I pack a bag in the morning, and I went and worked out so I can shower at the gym. And, um, and uh, I, I, I did my workout. I worked out really hard. I sweated a lot. I went and got my shower. I went to my gym bag, and I realized I hadn't packed fresh underwear now, this meant I had a choice for my life. Have any of you ever put on sweaty underwear? It is an awful experience. And if we don't repent, that's what it's like. If you, you, you cannot put on until you're willing to put off. And so what do we have to put off? Proverbs chapter 15, verse 4 says this, A gentle tongue is a tree of life. But perverseness breaks the spirit. We have to take off our perverse words that destroy. Proverbs 12, verse 18 and 19 says this. This is one whose rash words are like a sword thrust. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Now, there are varied ways for our words to be destructive. Let's just name a few of them. We named some earlier. You can tell outright lies. You can manipulate the truth. You can remain silent. You can gossip. You can speak in a harsh tone of voice. You can be constantly critical. You can simply engage in talk that is vapid, stupid, irrelevant, crass, 
worldly or gross. You can fail to encourage, exhort, or admonish. What's the call? When you greet one another, do so with songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. I hear hardly any singing from you people when you show up on Sundays. And you can fill your words with nothing but complaining and grumbling. Did you hear that, kids? Complaining and grumbling. (laughs) But isn't this who we are? I feel like we have whole generations that are known for this now. It seems to be a, 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 a trait of the young. It's like we, we expect, we come into the world and we expect life to be exactly the way we want it, and so we complain until we realize, well, it's just not going to happen that way, and so we finally decide to be quiet. But, man, so many of us are like the monk in the old story, in which he went to live in a monastery, and the rules of the monastery was you only get to speak two words every seven years. So after the end of seven years, he goes to lead, meet with this, the, the lead monk, and he sits with him, and he goes, first two words, he has to, only two words he has to say in seven years, and he says, food bad. <laughs> seven more years goes along, meets the head monk, comes into his office, bed hard. Finally, seven more years goes by, walks in, it's been 21 years, two words, I quit. The lead monk look at him, looks at him and says, well, good, all you've done is complain since you got here. And that's some of you guys, isn't it? You came into the world complaining, and you haven't stopped since. And what does that say? Here's here's what's really distressing. It says something about not just your words. It says something about your heart. Matthew 12, verse 34 says this, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Uh Uh-oh. Proverbs 15, 28 says, The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. So if you want to know how you're doing internally, listen to your words. You listen, self, what are my words saying about what is going on in my heart? What do your words reveal about what's going on inside of here? Now, if I haven't gotten you to a place of grief over the, the sin of your words, then I got one more final arrow. This is the big kahuna. This is the golden arrow. God cares about every word. Two verses after Matthew 12, 34 is Matthew 12, 36, and it says this, I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every, every careless word that they speak. Oh, no. What's it say in our passage? Let no, that means not one corrupting word come out of your mouth. And what is God's response to our grievous words? God has an emotional response to our words. What's it say in verse 30? It says it grieves the Holy Spirit. Why is that? It's saying that the words are so powerful to create and destroy. It's to live against the image of God who loves to create and give life with his words, but instead to destroy with your words, grieves the very heart of God. God cares deeply about every one of your words. So let me ask you, If you have the ears to hear, does your heart quake with such conviction? Does your mouth stammer with confection? Is your heart at a plate that's humble before a holy God? Then you are now at a place that you're ready to repent. So let's do that. Action step two. What is the destructive type of words that you use? Just list one. Are you a criticizer? Are you a constant complainer? Are you a gossiper? Just list one. I'm not, we're not even doing a deep dive. Just one. Just one area. Just one area. I'm going to give you about 30 seconds. Just write out a prayer of asking God for help in that area. 
I'm going to pray. You write it down. What's the area? What's the cry of repentance? As you're doing that, I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we are a people who misuse our words constantly. We have not given life. We have poured out death and poison from our mouths. God, I I had to apologize to two people this morning because of my own conviction this week. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would be a people who are slow to speak, who are quick to listen, that we would think about how our words can give life. Forgive us, Lord, for being a people of death to our children and to our spouses, to our neighbors. For those in this room who just, just don't speak when they need to be giving life to people, would you forgive us for our silence and help us to speak? We pray this in Jesus' name. All right, one final step in your dance. We need power, though, right? We've obeyed. We've called to obey. We've repented now. But now we need something to believe because this is discouraging. How many of you have been struggling with your words? I, I have, and I've been struggling since I was about mm, two years old. Oddly enough, right around the time I found words. In fact, a number of years ago, I was in a prayer class in which we were listing out some things. We were asking, kind of creating a card, a prayer card of confession, and listing out kind of the top 10 areas in which we saw sin in our lives. Six of the 10 of mine all involved words. Now, why do you think the evil one would come after me in regards to words? Ah, because not many of you should be teachers, because we're held to a higher account. What would the evil one love to destroy in my life? how I use my words. We need power then because this is not something you can do with willpower because what did it say in Matthew 12? This is a matter of the heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And isn't this good news as we saw last week? He's given you a new heart, a new life, a new identity in there. And yet, you know what we need now? We still have that old man We have the old man and the new man, and now there's a battle inside of our hearts. And what we long for and what we need is for Jesus and his life to be cultivated in us from the inside out. And here's the question. So there's a lot of gospel we can go to in order to, that we can believe and trust in as we do this fight for our words. But let me ask you this. What is, what is, would change your words most often? I think it is when God cultivates in you himself by speaking his own words into your heart. That if God wants to change your words, you're going to have to hear his words. And here's the final point. Belief is hearing the words that heal. John chapter 7, verses 46. I'll give it to you in the King James because I love the way it's said. The officers answer when they hear Jesus teaching, this man speaks, this man has spake like this man, no man has spake. Never a man has spake like this. This is why I don't read from the King James Version. I'm just not coherent enough to even read Bible. Never man spake like this man hath spake. In other words, no one has ever spoken like Jesus spoke. No one has ever been, been more gentle and kind. He never had an idle word. His, his speak was, was always truthful and direct, but it was always swimming in a sea of love. Even when he challenged people and cut people, he did it because he longed to see repentance in their life. He was always seeking to extend life and invite others into his life with his words. But he's not just the master of words. He is the word, right? John 1.1 says he is the divine logos. Hebrews 1 says he is actually the final word. There's a period after the name Jesus. 
He is the Alpha and the Omega. That means he's the whole, he's the whole alphabet. But the deep healing of our heart happens when we hear the good news. And the good news of the cross is this. Is that the perfect word, this word Jesus, when he cried out on the cross, what did he get? Silence. Now, who deserves silence? You and I. Because our words have been meant to destroy and kill two-year-old children and 82-year-old grandmothers. Our words have been used to destroy and hurt God's image bearers in this world, and we deserve what? For God to say, enough of you. You get my silence. But the good news of Jesus Christ is he came into this world, and he spoke perfectly on your behalf, and then he said, I will take the silence of God that you deserve so that you might hear this, so that for the rest of your life, you may hear the good news of Jesus and God's affection spoke over you. That is the good news. But you know what? The gospel doesn't end there. We have to hear the word of good news. It has to be spoken over us. We have to have our heart changed, but that takes time. And so we have to hear it over and over and over again. We have to sense and feel and know daily this good news and hear the voice of God. How do we relearn to speak? How does your words get healed? You get the spirit of God inside of you who speaks to you day in and day out. And when the Spirit enters our life and he gives us this new heart, he remains. He doesn't come in for just a moment and go, poof, new life, and then he bails. What does he do? It says he baptizes, he indwells us. He lives inside of you so that he might sit there and he may whisper to you the gospel day in and day out. And so yes, he comes in and his words convict us, but then he covers us. His words call us, but then encourage us. His words challenge us, but then comfort us. The Spirit comes inside of you as the new life, and He speaks perpetually. His words echoes in the deep caverns of your soul, as it says in the New Testament, from deep calling to deep. And what specifically does the Spirit speak into you? I would say, as it says here, this, that our words are supposed to be wholesome, life-giving. They're supposed to be good words, the best words. Good words. You know what the, the Greek word is for good word? Benedictus. It's actually the Latin word, sorry. Benedictus. It's where we get the word benediction. And you know where we have evidence of the benediction in the New Testament? Here's the first one we hear. Jesus is going down to be baptized by John the Baptist, and a dove comes down on his shoulder, and a voice breaks forth. And what does it say? This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And if you're a Christian, that means day in and day out, that voice is there for you too. Because he removed the silence of God, now you get to hear nothing but the voice of God speaking over you, that you are his beloved, you are his child, and you are pleasing in his sight. Now let me ask you something. This afternoon, when you and your, your spouse are in an argument... And you've kind of gone to your separate corners. And the Spirit of God comes to you and says, Ah, you are my beloved child. And that's the place you're at. As you walk back in the room, how do you want to speak? You want to speak that same kind of love. So you walk into your child's room. And you say, Ah, 
Maybe you just begin where God has been speaking to you. My son, my son, I love you so much. Come here, we need to talk. You, you couch every difficult thing you say with, I'm going nowhere. You're mine. My goodness, wouldn't that change our conversations? Hearing the voice of Jesus day in and day out, man, it'll heal your words. What does that look like? Well, obviously it means you've got to get into the word, right? I'll give you an image to close. We go back to Helen Keller. You know how she, she learned to sign. That's cool. Then she learned to read, braille. But ultimately, you know how she learned to speak? I mean, you see, if a child is born blind, they can, they can, they, they, but they can hear, they can learn to speak, right? Because they can hear words and mimic it with their own mouth. If a child is deaf, they can watch lips and learn to speak. But if you're both deaf and blind, how do you learn how to speak? Well, it's the same issue for Helen Keller. So her teacher, Annie Sullivan, had a brilliant idea. And what she took, she did was she took Helen's hand and she would run her hand over a braille word. And at the same time, she would stick Helen's hand in her own mouth and she would say the word. She'd read love and she would feel, what does it feel like to say the word love? And she'd be able to mimic with her own tongue the physical expression of the word. And over years and years, she learned to speak. What do you think that looks like for you? Because some of us, our senses are still only now coming awake in Jesus. And yet he gives us his word by which his spirit speaks and we put our, our fingers on the tongue of God's spirit and we say, ah, oh, speak to me. Because I have, I have this muscle that just runs amok in my face. Would you teach me how to speak? And you do that day in and day out. And maybe, just maybe, over a long, long period of time like Helen Keller, your words will give life. Let's pray. And ask for God's help to help us do that. <laughs> oh, Lord, my words have been a problem for a very long time. And it would lead one to discouragement and despair that this could ever change. So, Lord, third action step, I pray that you would come and help us where we don't believe. <laughs> where we think, truly, when I flip my lid, I will not be able to control my tongue. So, Spirit of the living God, I pray that in that moment that, <laughs> that you would come and you would take control. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that day in and day out that you would place like a weight, like an anchor that we need at the bottom of our heart, the truths of how you view us and what you say about us. So that when life gets hard and it gets emotional, that what comes out of us is the word of God. That it begins to be what is, what, is what is at the depths of our heart is your words about us and about the world around us. And that you would change not just our words, but Lord, you would begin to change our whole view of the world. That Lord, we would begin because our words change, we'd be less cynical and less... Uh, View our, less complaining and less view as if everyone's out to get us. And we'd actually be able to see people as, as mission fields, vessels by which we can go speak into and give life. So Lord, change our mission by changing our heart and changing our words. 
Well, Lord, when it gets hard, I pray that we trust in you. We keep coming back to repentance. We keep laboring on until one day what flows out of us is a fresh spring of living water. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.